Welcome back to the podcast of the River Anglican Church in Blacksburg, Virginia. Today we're talking about the influence of Eastern mysticism, but not hating Eastern mystics. So here's Jonathan to talk about that. You may be seated. Well, good morning. So we're now in our fifth week of a series entitled The Other Worldview. And if you're just catching up with us, it's based on this book uh, by Peter Jones. And last week we talked about seven and eight. I'm not even going to try to do kind of a, you know, rehearsal of what we talked about because it was so massive that it just would take forever. So listen to last week's sermon. It's on our website. And, uh, and this week we're, ta- uh, we're talking about chapter nine, which is entitled Salvation by Shaman. Now, if that doesn't pique your interest, I don't know. What will? Because the issues brought up in this chapter is what Jones says the East is coming West and the West is going East uh, is absolutely critical for the church to be talking about. Today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize what Jones says, and then I'm going to answer the question, how does this apply to you and to me? So in chapter nine, uh, Jones highlights several movements and figures who are Eastern in origin and discusses the popularity of uh, Eastern religions and yoga and and Hinduism, stating that people, that pilgrims, he says, are eager for the benefits that Eastern spirituality offers. Stress reduction, relaxation, a sense of belonging, wholeness, deeper benefits, such as the experience of discovering one's true self and even the possibility of saving Humanity by creating a future utopia of peace. Deep in the heart, however, he says, deep in the heart of this upbeat utopian cosmology, a view of the world, is a spiritual power deriving from the dark world of shamanism. He reacquaints the reader with Carl Jung and the relationship between modern psychology and Eastern religion. He asserts that figures such as Thomas Berry, Stanislav Grof and Gene Houston, three figures out of others that he mentions, are modern-day practitioners who promote even the darker side of Eastern spirituality, not only by word, but also by writ. And he asserts that by opening, by the West opening, and by us opening ourselves to Eastern spirituality, we see an increase in mediums who communicate with the dead, channeling God and goddess worship, and much more. To him, this is not a benign issue, obviously. It's a very serious issue. And to Jones, one of the, I think, central points that he makes is that understanding the leaders of movements helps you understand the movements. We might see a movement at the edges, but when you understand the leadership of a movement, you can better understand the movement itself. And he says this, about the leaders of Eastern spirituality. He says, a shaman is a magician, a medium, or a healer who owes his or her powers to mystical communion with the spirit world. Sometimes called a witch doctor, spiritual guru, or medium, the shaman is a spiritually alert human being in touch with and in control of departed spirits and the spirits of animals Able to see into the past, predict the future, diagnose, cure, even cause suffering. Shamans claim the ability to travel in the upper and lower worlds and are thus intermediaries between the natural and the supernatural world. 
Jones' summary of Eastern spirituality includes this. First, he says, spiritual disciplines like Eastern meditation or yoga seem to offer ways of making the world a better place, but the path of contemporary spirituality leads down a slope right into paganism. Mindfulness meditation is a Buddhist technique for the suppression of desire. Mindfulness becomes a pagan kind of mindlessness. The goal of yoga is to promote the union of Atman, the individual soul, with Brahman, the greater soul, which is not a personal being but a spirit force, what the Hindus call deities. The mantra, which means literally to free oneself of thought, helps you escape the reality of the world to discover the mystical state of bodilessness or mindlessness. The goal of this spirituality is to destroy binary oppositions by self-induced altered state of consciousness, which is the domain of the paranormal. And finally, Eastern meditation techniques all involve silencing the mind. In contrast to Christian meditation, which fully involves and stimulates the mind. Well, hopefully you're getting the general direction of Jones's thought on this matter. He's concerned with the East's impact upon the West. He believes there's a perceived innocence to practices like yoga that are actually gateways into deeper and darker practices. He does not believe that the West has a strong enough theistic worldview to withstand the onslaught of oneistic teachings. If you remember our teachings, oneism is where the creator and the creation are one. He's therefore concerned about all who will promote and practice shamanism. So the following quote summarizes this. He says, having lost the biblical worldview, our cultures no longer has the mental mechanisms to resist the outlandish expressions of radicals committed to pushing the envelope. When the light of the world is systematically removed, the world is plunged into moral and spiritual darkness, and how many Christians will fall for this subterfuge? Well, this is, you know, as I've said before, you know, he's not a perfect author, and this is not a perfect book. And I take, uh, you know, take difference with him uh, on several levels and disagree with them at several levels. But sometimes, you know, there's no, not going to be any book that we completely agree with. We get that. There's not going to be any, you know, that we agree with everything about the book. But I do think he has some things to offer. And sometimes even if we read someone that we disagree with, it helps to, uh, to make our view more clear. So let me start with application, or let me get into application here. It'd be difficult to uh, argue and dispute the truthfulness of Jones' statement that Eastern spirituality has been very popularized in the West. Would you guys agree with me on that? I mean, it's become very popularized. Even someone told me that uh, they were at a conference this weekend, and um, you know, it was a work conference, and the hotel they were staying in had a large Buddha, and everybody wanted to get the, you know, get a picture in front of the Buddha. You know, so uh, probably wouldn't have happened, uh, whatever, 80 years ago. Might have happened 60 years ago, but. There's no doubt that even our language and our, next, our lexicon, like, oh, that's karma and mantra and words like that have made its way uh, into uh, our language. Especially in the last year, 60 years since 
uh, Jones asserts the sexual and spiritual revolution we've seen in a lot more Eastern meditation, each Eastern, you know, Eastern language. Even the other day, I had someone, a friend of ours, over, and they were talking about energy and and you know um, and all this kind of stuff. And and so you know, and it was just its, its own world, its its own language. Uh, how they, you know, they were coming. There was good energy coming off of them because they were kind of unifying with the universe and all this kind of stuff. And but there are important clarifications that Jones does not make in this chapter, and I think it's important we talk about them. Talk about what we're opposing and what we're not opposing. And so it's first important that we do some global defining, which, again, I may have missed it, but I don't hear him doing this. Uh, you know, we're very Eurocentric when we talk about the East being the East and the West being the West, right? Because we're, we're West of somewhere and we're East of somewhere, <laughs> We in the Western Hemisphere use the term Eastern to refer to uh, religions in the Eastern Hemisphere, you know, and this includes these four main religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, and Sikhism. So when we talk about religions from the East, we have to realize there's already kind of a, a misnomer to that in that, you know, there's really no East and no West, so to speak, but if we're going to talk, you know, let's just go ahead and decide that we're in the Western Hemisphere. and Let's just let it be and not try to change that. But in the same breath, we must remember that Judaism and Christianity began in the East, right? It is a Middle Eastern religion. And so we must be careful talking negatively and pejoratively about the East as bad because our religion grew up in the East. So I'll get to that in a minute. So, but this being said, first, we must not be naive uh, to, to kind of focus on what jo Jones says that I believe is accurate. We must not be naive to the reangers, the reangers, that's the dangers and the reality put together, okay? The, yeah, the dangerity of oneistic spirituality, which includes Eastern religions. This has been a theme of this book. The core of Eastern religions are indeed not, uh, not necessarily just spiritual, because the mantra today, right, you talk about using language, is, you know, that I can, be I can be spiritual but not religious. And the core of Eastern religions is, is not spiritual per se, but according to the Bible, the core of Eastern religion is opposed to uh, the Bible and to Christianity. I can say that because if, you know, I have a Hindu brother-in-law who has a Hindu family, and so we have extended family who are Hindu, and such religions often include idol worshiping and sacrificing to false gods and belief in reincarnation and contact with the paranormal and contact with the dead, ancestor religion. And so when we, you know, people like to talk about, you know, Eastern religion in this kind of benign way, but when you get to the core of it, there's nothing benign. There's nothing, these, these, these are religions that God said, don't be involved in them. This is very, 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 very serious in the Old Testament. I mean, he, he, he said that diviners and sorcerers and mediums should be stoned to death in the Old Testament. He didn't, you know, you don't mess around. You don't have like, you know, well, I'll stop there. But these, they're not sympathetic with Christianity. In fact, at the core, they're hostile to it. 
Shamans, for example, are intermediaries, like it was said, between the natural and the supernatural, normal, paranormal, uh, the living and the dead. And according to the scriptures, they are in the categories of mediums, diviners, and spiritists. So let's not just look at the edges of a movement. Let's look at the leadership of a movement. Then let's look now at the scriptures at 1 Samuel 28 and what God says about consulting mediums and diviners and spiritists. And if you want to, you can look at it. I'm going to make a few points. But 1 Samuel 28 is when Saul seeks out a medium. And my first point is, A, that he sought out a medium who is known as a witch at Endor or a medium or a spiritist at Endor because the Lord did not answer him. It was not an act of goodness. It was an act, according to the Bible, of unfaith and impatience. And we read in 1 Samuel 28, 5, when Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or the prophets. And so he didn't get the answer he wanted to. A lot of times when people seek out this, they're seeking it out because they want answers. They want a sense of, what's my future? What's going to happen to me? I need comfort and encouragement. That's what Saul did. So he then said to his attendant, find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. But the second thing we see in this passage is that mediums and spiritists are real in their powers. Many of the powers are real as well. The woman was able to uh, initiate communication with Samuel, the dead prophet. And Samuel was uh, able to communicate with Saul, and Saul was Samuel because of this medium or the spiritist, because of her role as a medium. The, the fact that such people exist and that their powers are real and their abilities are real are never in question according to the scriptures, whether in the Old Testament, or by the way, there's a lot about this in the New Testament as well. If you want to look up Simon the Sorcerer, the story in Acts. C, participation in such practices is forbidden according to the Bible. The passage is clearly written to portray Saul's actions in a negative light. And witches, mediums, sorcerers, diviners, anyone who is in communication of, you know, with the dead, worship of any other god like this, were forbidden. I pulled up Deuteronomy 18.10 that says this, Let no one be found among you who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable. Is detestable. That's like an abomination. That's like, you know, hardcore bad to God, if I can say that as eloquently as I did. Verse 14, the nations you will dispossess, he said, listen to those who practice sorcery and divination. That's the nations. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. My second point of application is how we interact with Eastern spirituality in the U.S., therefore, is very important. So the physical aspects of yoga are undeniable. Stretching, increased... Now, I haven't done it per se, and, you know, you don't want to see me do it probably, but, you know, stretching, 
yeah, anyway, I'm, I'm, my mind has moved ahead. I, can, I can't say half of what I'm thinking. But stretching, increased circulation, breathing, being quiet, alone, silence, very, very good things. And none of these things are forbidden in Scripture. But we must not be naive to the fact that behind things like yoga or karate or other examples are not Christian, but ultimately are opposed to Christianity at their core. It presents, these religions, again, present a different God, a different view of truth, a different view of salvation. And if you want to hear more about that, last week's message really went into uh, the uh, different view of salvation that oneism presents, including Eastern religion. So the question, the million-dollar question is, uh, should you participate in yoga and karate? I feel like you know there needs to be a drum roll of some kind. And to me, the way I would answer this, it really depends on the depth to which you are participating. Now, if you mean participating in the exercises related to yoga or karate, again, stretching and breathing and silence, learning to defend yourself in karate, staying fit. I don't know if you guys knew that I had a green belt uh, back in the... <laughs> It's true, I had a green belt back in the 80s. It took me a year and a half to get that green belt, folks. But all these things, staying fit through the movements related to karate, none of these are forbidden in the scriptures. However, when yoga and karate, as examples, not to pick on them, like, you know, so you like feel ashamed to go into your yoga class or your karate class, but, but yoga and karate, when they offer meditation, when they offer altered states of consciousness, when they offer connecting and channeling with the divine energy and the universe, absolutely not. You're opening yourself up to what someone else is offering as worship, as a prayer, as meditation, but not to the God, to a God. And at that point, such uh, such. Things like yoga and karate are not simply physical or physiological, but they're spiritual and they're religious. So let's not be naive. If you can participate with the former, with the physiological, without the latter, again, I don't see any scriptures prohibiting it. But the moment it begins to get into the spiritual, you do one of those. You know, see you later. That means see you later in my not verbal language. Third, we must be careful. I really like this point. I feel like God gave me this point because the church doesn't often talk about this. But we must be careful to separate the rejection of oneistic spirituality of Eastern religions from the rejection of those who practice them. Do you understand the importance of that? We must separate the rejection of these religions and what they're teaching and what they're promoting from those who practice it. We are not against people from the East. We are against untruth. Christianity teaches that false religions are false and fallacious and grievous. We are opposed to lies and to untruths and to heresy. We're opposed to Satan who works through falsehood and who works through false worship and false religions. However, we are for people. We are not against a people. We're not against people who practice other religions. 
Now, I have to stop and just insert a quick uh, comment that um, I, I hear it said a lot, you know, all religions lead to God, and therefore, you know, we shouldn't be kind of opposed, or I'll say it this way, that Christianity is the same as other religions and vice versa. But this is actually untrue and logically impossible. All of the major religions have absolute beliefs about truth. Even if it's a religion like Buddhism that tries to encompass all truths, even that is an absolute belief about truth. And some would say, well, there is no absolute truth, right? Every religion, each person to their own. The problem is that itself is an absolute truth, that there is no absolute truth, right? It's just hard to see it when you say it. So the major religions and their beliefs are actually in conflict even with one another, nonetheless in conflict with Christianity. Are you still following me? Are we still together here? Wow, that's so, over, yeah, so overwhelming attestation of complete focus. But the gods, for example, of Hinduism and Buddhism, the god of Islam is radically different than the Hebrew god. And you say, well, how can you say that? Because we're thinking of the edges, right? We're thinking of the edges. But at the core of them, don't forget that our God said that I am the vine. I'm the door for the sheep. I'm I'm the gate. I am the light of the world. I'm the resurrection of the life. And our God said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. We cannot forget that claim by Jesus. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. Ultimately, all other world religions reject Jesus as the sole source of salvation. Do you understand that? They reject that Jesus is the way. No, he's a way maybe, but he is not the way. They reject the scriptures, the Bible as authoritative. They have other means of inspiration. Even the Latter-day Saints have something close, but they change it. And I'll say it again, these religions are not even compatible with one another. They're not compatible with Christ and with Christianity. So let's put aside the, you know, the idiom that all, you know, all religions lead to God. But I want to offer a paradoxical thought. This doesn't mean, on the other hand, that there isn't truth in other religions. Okay? Some, sure, there is truth to be found in Buddhism. For example, Buddhists believe that, that the hard work brings enlightenment, brings goodness. That's a, you know, Christianity would definitely agree with that. And so in essence, all truth is God's truth. What is truly true is truly God's truth. But that doesn't mean that everything a religion believes, like Buddhism, nor the ends of Buddhism, are true. Similarly, we are not to be against Buddhists, like I said, or the ethnicities who are Buddhist. We don't see any of that in Jesus, by the way. If you look at the scriptures, he's interacting with Samaritans and Syrophoenician woman, the Syrophoenician woman, people from all kinds of different cultures and religions, and he's never deciding not to interact with them because they are from different religious views. So it is one thing for us to say that a religion contains truth, It's another thing for us to say that the entirety of a religion's beliefs are true.
So let's think back for a minute in the New Testament. Here's, a, here's a, I think, a pretty, pretty easy quiz, like a softball, as it were, to use Scott Kramer's metaphor. Um, who, bowed, who were the first to bow before Jesus at the manger? Who were the first to bow before Jesus? I mean, I don't know, maybe people, but who were the three, okay, you know, the wise men, the magi, where'd they come from? They came from the east. They were astronomers, astrologers, wise men. You know, they were that caste that a king or a pharaoh or someone would have around them who told them, uh, you know, they were scientists, but they were also spiritists. And they came from the east because God had given them a supernatural star that told them where to come and who they were going to worship. And so they bowed before Jesus. And that's a reminder that God is still very much pursuing people in the east. He's still very much pursuing people like you and me. And here in you know, the New River Valley, we have this incredible opportunity to love and serve and reach and teach and disciple people from Eastern nations, because many of them are going to go back with the gospel of Jesus to their own country. And so that's an incredible opportunity. So let's not be against them. Let's not be a biased against them. Let's be biased for them so they can bring the gospel back to their homeland. Revelation 7 says this, and why don't you say this with me? After this I looked... And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Friends, let's continue to pray. Let's continue to meet and to share about Jesus with all people, um, including those from the East and of different religious persuasions. Well, fourth and finally, much of what people say they're seeking in Eastern spirituality, because Robin and I interact with a number of people in the community, and we hear again and again, well, I'm seeking, you know, I'm seeking these things out through, you know, um, Eastern spiritual practices. That much of these things God has actually provided in Christianity. And for whatever reason, that's forgotten. So what are some of the things people are looking for? They're looking for a holistic spirituality. Do you realize how much the Old Testament says about diet, you know, and different aspects of the body and how we're to conduct ourselves? Even the New Testament talks about the benefits of physical exercise, you know, and so forth. So they're looking for a holistic spirituality that encourages body, health, and diet, and mind, and soul. They seek rhythms and practices to kind of order their day. That's one thing people are longing for in Buddhism, for example, or Islam, rhythms and practices. They're looking for silence and mystery and escape from life. They're looking for encounters with the divine. They're looking for strength and vitality and encouragement so they can re-enter into life differently as a result of these experiences. Friends, Christianity offers all these. A holistic faith that encourages us to be healthy of 
body, mind, and spirit, not a Greco-Roman faith that says, well, body doesn't matter, you know, it's all about spirit. You know, we are holistic Christians. That's why we kneel, right? That's why we do things with our body. That's why we actually take things, bread and wine, with our hands. That's why we have ours come forward and we travel because we are holistic people. That's why we travel for Holy Communion. Because it's different than just snapping our fingers and going, you know, garçon, you know, or whatever, and having somebody bring us communion. These are body things. And so there, in, Christianity, in Christianity, there are rhythms and practices that can shape our day. There's silence and mystery and peace and escape from life so we can be in our secret place with God. There are encounters with the divine and there's this Holy Spirit who we never know what he's going to do. And we begin the day and say, God, what do you want to do different today than yesterday? What, or what do you want to do the same? There's strength and vitality and re-encouragement with Christ to re-enter life as a different person. All these things Christianity has as well. But the question for other religions is, do they have Jesus? Do they have the living Lord Jesus Christ who offers us peace and joy and confidence in heaven? And who offers us the Holy Spirit and who offers us grace and forgiveness of sin. Do they have that? No, they don't. And so we have something precious, my friends. And there's no gospel of self-actualization. There's no salvation by self-actualization in Christianity. That's not the goal of our faith is to be better. The goal of our faith is to place our hope and our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And because of that, we will be transformed. So in closing, be wise and discerning and be careful when it comes to just oneistic religions in general and including Eastern spiritual practices. Be wary of engaging in the spiritual aspects of the East, affirming Eastern beliefs, because as I've said, they're they're in complete contrast to Christian beliefs. Love Eastern people. Reject the untruth and show how Jesus Christ fulfills what people are longing for elsewhere. Remember the words of Jesus that were read, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted, put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith, which we see happening, and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of this, the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Let's pray together. Lord, I know this is a hard message because many of us cannot disassociate loving people from affirming what they believe to be true. 
God, I pray that you will give this congregation the ability to see that being hospitable, that loving and welcoming people is very different than saying that everything that they believes, believe is true and affirming what is untrue. I pray you'll help us to see that actually affirming what it is untrue is not an act of love. It's actually leading them down the wrong path. But I pray you'll keep us, give us deep, deep love for people, not just for the people in the church, but for the people who are outside the church, for people that don't know you, for people from different ethnicities that come from different lands. Give us not a bias against them. Give us a bias for them. We pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this sermon from the River Anglican Church. You can find us on the web at theriverNRV.org, also on Facebook, and you can join us in person if you like on Sunday mornings at 9.15 at 110 Roanoke Street East, Blacksburg, Virginia, 24060. We hope to see you again next week.